Hey there, and welcome to the Coachworth Podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Murphy. Listen, did you know that your brain is the most powerful tool on this planet? It is. And I'm going to teach you how to train your brain, clear your focus, and claim your success. So let's get going. Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of the Coachworth podcast called The Indecision Vacuum. Such a mysterious title. So today I want to talk to you about something a lot of you may recognize, whether you're a business owner, an employee, or maybe just a keen observer of organizational behavior. It's this thing I'm going to talk about, the indecision vacuum, this situation is especially prevalent in closely held founder-led companies. And I've thought about this concept for a long time. I actually made up a term to describe it, which is um, super fun, making up your own terminology, by the way. So my term for this is the indecision vacuum. And the best way maybe that I can describe it to you is to give you like a little story. So let's say a guy starts a business and I'm saying guy here, folks, because it's easier. Please don't send me hate emails or whatever. I am a female business owner. I totally get it. But here I'm just going to, for simplicity, say guy. Many of you listening have done this. So there are so many phases to starting and developing a business, right? There is the idea or conception phase. Then there's the labor and birth and delivery. I know, I know I said guy, right? So here I am describing this um, in very female terms, but you all know what I mean. None of these phases are easy. I don't know what exactly to call the phase that I'm talking about, but if I said early stage, that would probably be apt. So back to my guy, he's launched this business, whatever it is. And, you know, sometimes businesses are launched with um, a team or maybe two partners, but I promise you there's always one who is the ringleader, for lack of a better term, even if he or she isn't uh, doesn't have controlling interest. You all know the person I'm talking about, right? The driving force behind this little fledgling business. Sometimes there can be two of those people, fine, sometimes, but usually one. So the fledgling stage or early stage, as it's more commonly known, it might be perhaps the hardest. It can also be called the waiting for the phone to ring phase or waiting for the email or the message to come. It comes like after the website is built, after maybe the first couple of customers, there's been a proof of concept, meaning, okay, we have this product or service and yes, hey, it seems like people are willing to pay for it because a couple have. And yay, I mean, we actually have a business as opposed to just an idea or a hobby or what some people like to call a jobby. I want to say right here that in some rare instances, I want to call these um, unicorns, but I actually totally hate that term. In rare cases, some businesses just rock it right out of the gate, right? We've heard about these. In some cases, the businesses are actually formed to meet a demand for something, Um I recently heard this designer, 
what's her name? She makes handbags, Rebecca Minkoff, I think. I heard her talking about how she got started. She made a t-shirt with, I think it was a t-shirt. I'm probably not going to get this totally right, but I think it was an I Heart New York shirt, a different take on that. And she was selling a few, but then some actress wore the shirt on The Tonight Show and like, boom, the demand for that shirt just went through the roof overnight. And so somehow she migrated from silk screening cheap t-shirts to designing more expensive handbags. They're not like Chanel, but they're in the mid price range. And while Rebecca and Minkoff is not a billionaire, I don't think, and I don't actually know her net worth, but she's not a billionaire. She is doing very well. Let's just say that. But in the case of that business, it was just, maybe it was inevitable, but it was also a bit of a fluke that this overnight demand just sprang up. Not to discredit any of the work she did, but that's not the usual path, right? Most of our businesses start out with the idea for a product or service. (coughs) Excuse me. The founders see it in the marketplace, but you know, they have to test it out. They have to refine it. They have to offer it to the world. Um, they have to put it out there and see if buyers are going to buy it. Okay. So my story with the guy, right? He's in this early stage. They have some customers. So yes, it's a real business, but no one knows the wonderful ad agency or law firm or designer bag or widget, whatever the business is, like even exists. Obscurity (laughs) is where they're living. This product or this service is so needed in the world. And he knows people are going to buy it because a few have done so, but they're not beating a path to his website, let alone his door. This is the exact stage I'm talking about. The stage where The founder does marketing, advertising, talks to everyone he knows, including his family and friends who are by now, right, so, so sick of hearing about this new technology, product, service, whatever. He's constantly marketing, constantly promoting. And what does he get? Pretty much goose egg. Maybe he gets stood up for appointments. Maybe he does, I don't know, a webinar and no one shows up. Maybe he spends a boatload on advertising and he gets nothing. A few looky-loos, that's it. Almost all businesses reach this stage. It is a real, actually, it's a real test of the founder and his or her commitment. This is the point at which the money is definitely not coming in. It's actually going out. And the founder, if using his or her own funds, is just like getting up to his ears in the investment. Might not be the greatest investment, but like there's nothing coming back, right? This is where the faith and belief system of the founder is formed, and it's really crucial right here. So I want you to step back a little bit, big picture, and think about something. All businesses get to this stage. They don't all survive it. What kind of founder survives this stage when the whole world seems to be sending the message that your business isn't working? it's doomed. I submit to you that this person is a little bit extraordinary because a lot of people quit right here. Um, Not like Superman or Jesus kind of extraordinary. What I mean by that is, yeah, people quit. And this is the moment. They will say they ran out of money, but usually that's not quite right. They run out of, what they run out of is faith 
and belief in their product or service, in their customers. I mean, they really, really, really need to believe that those customers are like just right around the bend and they're coming. They'll be here any minute. Um, But most of all, it's about belief in themselves and what they're doing and the decisions they're making. So have I, I don't know if I've talked on this podcast about confidence versus self-confidence. It's probably a subject for a whole other podcast and I will do that. But very briefly, the entrepreneurs who have survived this stage, what they have is self-confidence. <clears throat> Excuse me. By that, I mean, they're doing something A, that they've never done before. And B, that every objective bit of feedback in the universe is telling them, nope, this is not working. But they know that if they just keep trying, they will figure out the right marketing and connect with the right people. And it's going to work. So anyone can do this, almost anyone. I train people to have this level of belief in themselves, right? But some people have a natural gift for it. They just come to it more easily and more naturally. They have this stubborn, almost pig-headed belief in themselves and what they're doing. Some people might call them crazy. Others might say they're arrogant. Um, It's just kind of who they are. They have a vision for this thing. And by hook or by crook, they're just going to make it work. Many years ago, I once had a client that I did some accounting for a long time ago. They needed tax returns done. They did not want um, financial statements or an audit, just taxes. And when I went through their books, I noticed that they had a huge loss, like a million dollars or something. I forget the amount. Very large. The business was 100% owned by one gentleman. I didn't actually deal with him. I dealt with the some other guy who was running the day-to-day thing. And I really wondered, like, did the owner know how badly it was going? But when I stepped back, I thought about it, like, of course he did. He was funding it 100%. And his loan, his investment into his company was in the millions of dollars. So he definitely knew. I tried to sell them, sort of upsell the engagement and to offer them some consulting. I really thought like maybe we could help them become more profitable, trim their expenses, whatever. Remember, this was in my role as a CPA in public accounting. He said no. That guy, his first name was John. He is exactly the kind of person I'm talking about here. He was losing his shirt and... I mean, he just didn't see it as a problem. He refused any intervention from well-meaning CPAs and professionals like me. So what kind of person is this John then? I never did get to know this guy well. Maybe I met him once or twice. But I've known many such people. And I've been, I think I've been that person. These are strong people, strong-minded. They have to be to stay in that stage and get past it, which by the way, this guy did. He has a successful business now. So this is where I'm going with this thing called the indecision vacuum. I'm getting to it, I swear. Take that company, for instance, this guy, John. So he has a very strong, very focused mindset. He's not listening to critics or experts like me or my colleagues or his lawyer. Nope. He has his own vision, and that's that. That's what he's following. So let's go like 10 years down the road on that company. The company has made it 
Yay. <laughs> it's thriving. It's grown. It's an organization now. The founder has, in fact, had to hire many people, some number of them, whatever the number is. So how is it to work with this person, this founder? I'm going to guess it's tough. Yep. Tough. And by that, I don't mean this person is a jerk. I mean, he could be or she or not. They could be totally, totally nice. It's not that. They want to call the shots. They are so confident in their own decisions. I mean, look, it's what got them here after all. So this founder, if he had listened to his CPAs, to his attorneys, maybe to his family, he might have thrown in the towel a decade ago. But here he sits and he's like, I'm so glad I didn't do that. So even if no one ever exactly told him to quit, this founder knows the reason that he didn't fold is because he was able to carry that vision in his mind so strongly when no one else could. So now you have a founder running a company. She, I'm going to say it's a woman here, is uber, uber confident in her own decisions. And no one else is actually. So you see where this is going? That person, the founder, might, you think that person might have trouble delegating decision-making? Yeah. She may even have problems with anyone who has alternative ideas, right? Different ideas. She might tend to create what I call the indecision vacuum all around her. So I want you to picture something. It's technically an organizational chart, but it doesn't look like any org chart you've ever seen. Picture a hub and a spoke like a wheel. Most organizations are not organized this way, but very often de facto in your closely held business, in your family business, you will end up with this effect, even if it's not the official org chart the way it would be drawn out. So what happens when that very strong leader, the founder, hires someone to the management team? They look for someone just like them. That's kind of what we all do when we hire, right? Research has shown this. We look for someone who shares our values and our experience, right? So they're not going to find someone exactly like them, obviously, but the qualities they will look for, decisiveness, action-oriented, self-motivated, self-starter, that's what they think they want, like a founder junior. So if the new hire is literally very junior, maybe it can work out because no matter how much a recent college grad might meet that description, they're just never going to be a threat in any way to the founder's decisions or leadership. And the founder, by the way, is not like sitting there looking for threats. <clears throat> That's the furthest thing from their mind. And not the way they look at this at all. They don't see that. But assuming they find the person and onboard them to the management team, not, not a recent college graduate, like someone more qualified, roll that situation forward. It can take some time for this dynamic to unfold. And it's going to happen. The problems are going to start pretty much after the initial honeymoon period. So the newly hired executive has been asked and encouraged to do stuff, make decisions, hire people, buy stuff, do the marketing, sell this, buy that, manage this team or that one, 
fire people, the expectation is totally that this new team member, part of the management team, will actually do stuff. Here's the problem. He does the stuff. And the founder, who I think now we should call this founder CEO, right, kind of bristles at it. Wow, he didn't ask me. He just went out and hired someone. Or in the, I'm switching up my pronouns here, but maybe he's looking over her shoulder. Pretty certain. Mm, I think she hired the wrong person, not the one I would have picked. And then starts criticizing the hire and implicitly, maybe, or explicitly critiquing the executive's selection processing. So the management team person, let's let's call this person executive one, spends money. That's going to get picked over. Or they make a product or service-related decision. They might come up with a new offering, a new product line, a new product. They might want to get rid of or change an old product. In short, this executive number one takes the exact type of actions they were hired to take. They do what they're supposed to do. But this is going to make our founder uncomfortable. Executive number one is probably eventually going to be out. It's not going to even take that long. Either she will get fed up and leave because of all the second guessing or might get asked to leave. Um, often there, this will come after significant headbutting and conflict with the CEO founder. So let's talk about a replacement executive number two. Well, you could have like the same exact situation happen, but eventually whether it's number two, three or four, I'm just going to say it's executive number two, the one who lasts in this job, the one who lasts in this job, let's say executive number two is going to be a person who everyone describes as, you know, super nice guy and who the founder will actually, you know, come to really like. He or she, though, is going to be so bland, right? Um, This person is not going to be described as a leader, more as an individual contributor. He is not going to be a person who has a lot of strong opinions or ideas. Executive number two almost always cannot make a decision to save his or her life. And if you think this person doesn't exist, let me tell you, they do. I've seen it. Um, And so this starts and perpetuates the vicious cycle of what I'm calling the indecision vacuum. So I'm talking about the circle of yes men and yes women. This is the inner circle of the founder, the top management team of this company. And the founder by now is probably sounding pretty evil, right? (laughs) But we have to remember this person is actually heroic, okay? This is the person who started the thing. But this person, she believes very, very firmly from her experience that her ideas are the best idea for her company. And she shouldn't listen to anyone else. That's a very deep-seated belief that probably isn't even expressed out loud. So things can go fine for a while because the inner part of the wheel, the hub, the founder, really deep down wants to be the one making all the decisions, whether they admit it or not. And it's not because he or she is a bad manager 
or a poor leader or arrogant or difficult. I mean, they, they could be. It's because of their experience, right? Remember their story. Maybe it's your story. <laughs> Remember that this person knows that once upon a time, the whole world was wrong about this business and I was right. So it's my judgment that I trust no one else's. And by kind of a natural selection process, the spokes that make up the founder's inner circle of management are going to, by default, just evolve to being people who see so eye to eye with him or her that there becomes this corporate blindness. Um, and it's very dangerous. Um, the lead, You have a leader who wants to direct and is a strong person. They may have a strong personality. And then the inner circle is going to be filled with people who want to be directed and want to be told what to do. It's a, it's a vacuum. Those folks get sucked into in, in the, in the hiring and vetting and evaluation process of the CEO. It's not their fault, the indecision vacuum. So in it, you will see a lot of seemingly high powered individuals who on paper have a lot of credentials, have a lot of experience, have a lot of authority, but in reality, they do not make the decisions. They defer to the leader. They make recommendations. So this setup can all actually work okay for a while until something happens, like something happens to the leader, the founder, or if the founder wants to step down or wants to um, pull back or re retire or semi-retire or or maybe wants to engage in some major initiatives such as acquisitions or other quantum leaps in the growth of this company. In coaching and actually in the rest of my career, I have known these people. Um, I think I've been this person too, meaning the founder, the hub. So the founder is not going to fully see this dynamic or understand it. Um, it can be really helpful to have a third party, such as a coach or a consultant or some uh, outside board or somebody like that, pointing it out. Although I can tell you from experience that this kind of critiquing of the founder maybe won't always be well-received or accepted. Sometimes those founders might be heard complaining, actually, and this is kind of the telltale sign, they complain about their senior people who, despite being asked and being very, very well compensated, don't take initiative, don't generate ideas. And while they technically get a lot of things done, they execute, they leave always, they leave the heavy lifting of decision-making, strategy formation, and innovation to the founder. And the founder in this situation can become really frustrated overworked, obviously, overburdened. And actually, this entire dynamic is a common cause of founder burnout. Two interesting variations on this, by the way, very common. So the family business, the founder will be the patriarch or matriarch. So there you have the added dimension of the spokes are going to be the senior management team are likely to be children, nieces, nephews, siblings, cousins, 
of the founder. You combine, and maybe they're not all, but they're, they're in there. Um, you combine this with, you know, your typical run-of-the-mill family resentments and jealousies and arguments, whatever, and you can see, it's easy to see why many family businesses just implode. Um, another variation is found when you have two co-founders. They can have their own separate sort of wheels, if you will, each with their own team of yes men or yes women around them. The indecision vacuum, it's dangerous. It can be overcome, but it starts and ends with the hub, the founder, the CEO. When that individual can encourage, can then, and this is something they usually have to learn and work at, but when they can encourage risk-taking among their team and even make failure a safe option for their management team, everything can change and the whole team can get so much more accomplished. An outside facilitator in this scenario can help a lot, but without correction, this super common situation can hinder growth, reduce valuation, and even, I'm sad to say, even kill a closely held business. So I encourage you, avoid it at all costs. Hey there. If you're enjoying this podcast, you've really got to come check out the private coaching programs at coachworth.net. In private coaching, what we do is we take this type of material and we apply it to your life. We take it to the next level and we study it with amazing results. Check us out at coachworth.net.